Hey everybody, welcome to the Somewhat Qualified Podcast. I'm Anne. I'm Jess. And I'm Milo. And we are here with an air conditioner that you can probably hear that we have absolutely no intention of turning off. Because otherwise, it would be hot. And as much as we love our listeners, we love a healthy body temperature a little bit more. But so we just we're all sitting next to each other right now and we just don't want to sweat on each other this as is well. Body heat. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh we love each other enough not to sweat on each other. That's true. Friends don't let friends record podcasts in suboptimal temperatures. Um all that being said, we've got a couple documentaries we want to talk to you about. One is on HBO. One is on Netflix. Uh, we're going to be discussing the similarities and differences between them because they both deal with the medical industry and innovation within the medical industry, or lack thereof. Um, uh, there's like innovation is <laughs> a brave term. For innovation her. and ways of screwing up people's insides. Right. So, Jessica, you picked The Inventor for us to watch this weekend. Yeah. So. You get to summarize it for the good people at okay, home. Okay, cool. And even the bad ones, too. Um, the Inventor, um, I believe it premiered in March on HBO. Um, it was directed by Alex Gibney. I liked Icarus, which is the movie he did before this about um, the Olympic doping scandal. Um, so The Inventor focuses on Elizabeth Holmes, who was the founder of a company called Theranos. Um, she essentially claimed that she had invented this machine which was able to perform over 200 blood tests on a dose of blood. And then um, after gaining a lot of, um, after raising a truly ridiculous amount of money, I think over $400 million, Theranos at one point was valued at over $9 billion, um, you know, covers of magazines, incredibly powerful people she recruited to her board and everything partnership with walgreens yes yes there's also that um john Carew from the wall street journal exposed essentially exposed her as a fraud um he later wrote a book called bad blood i believe it's like secrets and lies in silicon valley or something it's the full title and uh the um, documentary essentially summarizes what happened and kind of also maybe examines the psychology of Elizabeth a little bit. Indeed. And our other documentary was The Bleeding Edge on Netflix. Milo, you picked that one. Yeah, I did. Yes. Would you like to summarize it? Okay, so it ba- The Bleeding Edge basically focuses on uh, four medical devices. Uh, the permanent birth control, Esher, uh, vaginal mesh, uh, chrome cobalt, so basically metal on metal hip replacements, and then this robotic surgeon, and basically how they were approved through a loophole in the uh, FDA, and how they were basically ruining people's lives because they were not good. And a large chunk of the documentary actually focuses on different women's efforts to get Esher taken off the market, which it actually was shortly after the premiere of the documentary, which, that was great. The power of documentary filmmaking. Don't let anyone tell you the documentaries don't matter. 
they get shitty medical products taken off the market, as did all those women fighting for years and years. Um, and yeah, so what were some of like, um, what were some of the things that you liked about these documentaries? Some of the, um, I don't know if it's a thing, um, about, uh, the documentary specifically, um, I felt like the actual documentary was a little bit style heavy for me. I feel like I guess wait, I which one? The, Sorry, the inventor. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was a little bit style heavy. I was like, all right, give me like I get it. Like who? She like, wears black turtlenecks she a wears, lot. No, not even that. <laughs> Just in regards to like stylistic choices, like um, like you know the repeated references back to like Edison. I thought like got a little bit ham fisted at certain points. Mm-hmm. And then just like you know, like the computer simulation where you go down into the basement where the Edisons are. Um, but what I really liked about it is, I guess, essentially just the story of Theranos. I find incredibly fascinating because you actually listen to anything Elizabeth Holmes says, and it's like ludicrous. Like it's really not even believable from my perspective. And she was able to essentially convince so many people based on, you know, I'm going mm-hmm. back to that comically vague the yeah. description that she gave. Just to say, is, clarify, comically vague is, is what an actual quote. journalist called this quote about how they do a chemistry. The, the, like a chemistry <laughs> is performed and oh, blood is mixed with a reagent and the chemical reaction produces results, which is just literally describing essentially what a blood test is Mm -hmm. and describes nothing about what the machine does and essentially why the machine is so special Um, Yeah, because it didn't work at all. Yeah, and so Holmes's vision was one that it would require significantly smaller blood tests or blood samples compared to kind of industry standard. And also that the machines that would run these, like, 200-plus blood tests would be so small. They were maybe the size of, like, what, a computer printer, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Um, And her vision was that this would be so accessible that you could just go into Walgreens and you could order your own blood tests, which is not legal in most places. Usually you have to go to a doctor and have the doctor order the tests. Um, Which she actually specifically lobbied Arizona State to change the law for that. Yes, Um, So that was kind of her grand vision was that it would make um, blood testing just less icky um, because you wouldn't have to take as much blood and you would still be able to run all these different tests and it would allow people to get tested more often because it wouldn't be as cost prohibitive. um, And that's kind of... Like, let's just say there's a reason that labs work the way they've worked for decades. But, of course, this being Silicon Valley, she was like, no, everybody, you know, everyone told Steve Jobs that his dreams were impossible until they were possible. Um, She talks a lot about Steve Jobs. Um, So definitely that documentary focuses far more on this one character, Elizabeth Holmes, and kind of the company that she built. The Bleeding Edge is interesting, as Milo mentioned, because I think it addresses several different stories, and it's far more focused on the victims of all these 
um, piss poor medical devices that were just kind of thrown onto the market through a five, what's the 501 the 510k 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 the 510k exception to the uh, pre, to the PMA the yeah. pre medical approval yeah so just so we're clear now was Elizabeth's stuff do we know was that 510k approved or it would have had to be the stricter approval um, process I believe it was cleared at I, I believe, I think it was cleared through the 510 okay. maybe. So here's and something... And it was only cleared for one herpes test. Here's something that doesn't entirely make sense to me. Now, for those of you at home, the reason why the 510K... Did I say it right? Yeah. Yes. 510K. The 510K loophole is so different is that it allows companies to just kind of say, well, we didn't really come out with a new thing our new thing is quote unquote substantially similar to something that's already on the market. So uh, essentially you have a bunch of companies that are just totally skipping the part of the process where they would have to do you know, clinical trials and real human beings and they're just saying, well, our thing is similar to this other person's thing. So if that other person's thing is fine, our thing must be fine. Or even if that thing isn't fine, because things that are recalled above it do not affect anything below it. Which is a significant problem, yes. So my question is how Elizabeth Holmes could simultaneously be like, my thing is totally new, unlike any technology, anything else on the market, no one else is doing what we're doing, but also be using sort of the legal framework that is intended for new products that are quote-unquote substantially similar to what else is already out there like um well i guess because essentially it wasn't new technology i'm like double checking to make sure that it was cleared through the 510 i believe they said it was cleared through the 510k pathway um not in the movie but it's like i've heard that yeah but this is not helping. Google's not helping me at all. Actually, which one had the distinction between FDA cleared and FDA approved? That so FDA approved is the stricter one, where you do actually have to do human trials. Now we also watched an oh, episode yeah. of last week tonight, um, which focused on medical devices and featured clips from the Bleeding Edge. Yes. So that was where John Oliver went into a little bit of approval versus clearance. Yeah. So you might think that a medical device being FDA approved versus FDA cleared is like basically one and the same, but they are not. Um, so, but essentially the reason why I think it could have gone through the 510K pathway is because she was not essentially inventing a new way of doing things. She was just miniaturizing it. Okay. Well, and I'm also curious to know, is lab equipment is it tested the same way that like medical device or is it the fda's job to regulate like lab tests if it's not technically like a food or drug or a thing that goes inside Um, you i i believe it sounded like they did because the fda they specifically mentioned um how the FDA was very reluctant to clear the device for anything because they would not give them specific information on how the machine was yeah, done. Yeah, because of trade secrets. Yes. Um, yeah. So, like, they wouldn't even put, like, I guess initially when you are supposed to get something approved, you're supposed to, like, put forward, like, plans and, 
like actually like detailed diagrams of how the machine works and they would just kind of be like well this is what it does like mm-hmm. they would just send letters describing what the machine did yeah um so yeah I think it it was interesting to watch them both on the same day as we did because again like the inventor, this Theranos one, really doesn't talk that much about, like, the everyday average human beings that were potentially making medical decisions based on this test that was later proved to not really be super-duper accurate. Um, well, the very end, the receptionist was, because she had her and yeah. her kids tested, so there's that one. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Bleeding Edge definitely, definitely focuses more on, like, the victims um and the kind of devastation yeah and um would you say that would you say that there's like an inherent advantage or disadvantage to sort of like being more victim focused or more perpetrator focused um I don't know whether I would say it's an advantage or disadvantage um I think Bleeding Edge was much more focused in terms of, like, structure and how, like, essentially structural corruption or stru- and structural mm-hmm. ineptitude caused these problems to happen. Yes. Um, there is structural issues at play in the inventor as well um they discuss how LabCorp and Quest who are the two essentially monopolies of like the medical lab industry Mm -hmm. um you know they do price gouge and they created they basically created a vacuum which allowed Elizabeth to use as like a platform to market herself Mm -hmm. by saying that she would create affordable healthcare for people in need. I would also say they focus on different structures. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the inventor focuses a lot more on like the Silicon Valley venture capital structure and how she was able to get millions and millions of dollars just kind of poured into her business without any real results. Um, like I thought that that was... And truly without any yeah. evidence. <laughs> <laughs> and just, and also that like these investors were willing to just kind of take her word that, oh, oh, it's a trade secret. I can't tell you how it works because other companies would copy it. Um, And I think it does a good job of exposing, like, what happens kind of in that culture and that structure where sort of visionary is exalted over actual results. Whereas I would say the bleeding edge focused a lot more on like the legislative structures in DC, and um, of course, roasted the hell out of this five ten k loophole, but also talked about this e sure device, which technically did go through the quote unquote strict um, uh, PMA. Yeah, PMA definitely FDA approved. Yes, too. Meaning they did at the they did do human clinical trials, but there's still but issues. The Many of the yeah, the trials were shit. Um, so from my understanding... Not extensive and very small sampling. Yeah. I don't think the documentary actually gave, like, an exact number for how many people were in the um, 
in the sample. And then the other issue is that these are not third-party tests that are happening. The FDA, for the most part, trusts these companies to kind of run their own tests, and then you just kind of come to the FDA and, and say, hey, here's what we found. And then that's what they do to either approve or disapprove. And they had video of disapproval hearing where they even actually said, like... What happens if problems come up 10 years down the line? Yeah. And they said, like, people are going to be like, whoa, why would you ever, like, approve this? And they, they also had footage of people asking, like, very reasonable questions um, about this eSure device, which... The Esure was a permanent sterilization device that was supposed to be less invasive than getting your tubes tied. It was just something that you could get done at a regular, um, like doctor's visit. You wouldn't have to have like a, like surgery, surgery for. To describe like a device. Yeah. Like, do you want to describe it? Yeah, like it was basically a small metal coil, and they and they uh, inserted it in your fallopian tubes and expanded it, and it was supposed to create a uh, inflam- inflammation and grow tissue around it yeah. and it yeah, would shut your and it would shut your uh, fallopian tubes which came up again in the vaginal mesh where that was the exact wrong thing that was supposed to happen so why why people thought it was okay to have a metal device just sh- shut into you forever yeah well, does and, not make any sense. And in this FDA hearing, they asked some very reasonable questions like, well, what about people who have metal sensitivities? What if this happens? What if that happens? You know, can this be removed if something goes wrong? And basically they're like, eh, the hell if we know. And somehow they still approved it, which I thought was alarming. <laughs> but it also kind of, it made me feel... Like, this really odd, paradoxical um, combination of, like, optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. Because there's a part of me that's just like, well, you maybe don't necessarily need as dramatic of legislative, you know, changes as maybe I might have initially thought. You just need, like, smarter people running this approval process. Because there's no, like... If you, in theory, you could take those people out, swap them out with like good people mm-hmm. that use common sense, that have medical expertise, and they would just kind of say like, "Well, fuck no, this is dumb. We're not going to approve it." But then at the same time, there's the other part of me that's like, "But are they ever going to get those smart people?" <laughs> like, well, the, thing that, the thing that the film also goes into is essentially. The major- vast majority of the heads of the FDA, go, like, essentially have either worked in, like, venture capital firms, which create mm-hmm. medical devices, or, you know, they go on to work for them. So, I mean, it's really a case where, like, it starts from the top down. Yeah. Like, there's virtually no level. But I, I guess my question, is it really something that requires, like, Congress to write new laws, or is it a thing where just you need better enforcement of the laws that are currently on the books. Um, And, like, again, it's this weird thing that makes me both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time because, you know, I'm like, maybe Congress doesn't have to change as much as we think. They just need to be able to, like, have people at the FDA with integrity. And then the pessimistic part comes in and was like, ha, 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 people at the FDA with integrity, when's that ever going to happen? 
So I, you could like virtually make that argument. Like the problem is like essentially in like God like smile. I really aggravates like your inner leftist. Doesn't it? <laughs> um, no, I'm just saying like I almost feel like in like you know a society that's driven like essentially by capitalism and then like the majority of the people mm-hmm. are like super capitalists like there would never be like a way to assure integrity to me mm-hmm. there would yeah, always like, be there would always be the lure of millions but of then dollars. yeah the other side of that too and again this is the more pessimistic side is as long as you if you just kind of like take the more pessimistic view of like the FDA will never have integrity then there's also the question of like what can Congress even do then what law could like what law would have kept Esher off the market if the people running the FDA are that freaking stupid well I mean you could argue that like <laughs> I mean it's a really excellent argument for Medicare for all because then you would remove the idea of profit that's like yeah you could definitely industry. like yeah uh-huh. and that's like a far more that's a, that's yeah, over, that's like a complete overhaul. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like it's an overhaul that perhaps needs to happen. Oh. But like... Do y'all remember if anybody on that like FDA board had medical experience, had like field medical experience? Uh, I'm honestly not sure, but we could um, check. In we, theory, we could look that up. We could. Um, I, I think they said there, there are some doctors on... FDA boards. I don't think they all are required to be doctors. Though. But there, they well there's shit. also the question too of like, are they more researchers and they have the medical expertise, but more like they're not necessarily seeing patients on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, they're just kind of like more in the academic side of medicine than the actual practical side of medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, Let me see. Um, trying to like about advisory committees okay i don't i don't like i do want to improve the fda but i don't want to know i'm gonna like just see if i can pull up the literal netflix like thing and we'll see excuse us for not being like slightly more researched you can like listen to us research on the fly but that's okay Um, but yeah, like, there's also the, the part of me that's like, it's almost worse if they did have real doctors on it. Like, if they had real doctors that in theory should have known better and still were like, yeah, fuck it. That's almost worse. (laughs) Like, than if they, like, are just kind of letting anyone, you know, letting people who just don't know any better... (laughs) Um, and also, just for the record, um, East Shore, this hearing that we we're referencing, did happen in 2002. So in, I'm pretty sure anyone that approved this particular device is not with the FDA anymore, but like, we don't necessarily have a lot of lo- logical reasons to believe that the new people are better. Um, and it also gets back to the situation of like, this is only for that more strict approval process, which many medical devices are not going through at all. They're simply taking this, like, 510K loophole that doesn't require them to do any clinical trials. Um, 
and They make it very hard to find out what, um, like, what is required to be on an advisory committee. Okay, so I'm just gonna, like... It feels very unpurple. Yeah. It says, um... The government lacks transparency. Advisory committees provide FDA with independent advice from outside experts on issues related to human and veterinary drugs, vaccines, and other biological products. Um, it just says, essentially, like, experts... With experts with special knowledge, um, so I'm guessing the vast majority of them would be doctors, but it doesn't necessarily seem like. Okay, I'm actually gonna. I pulled up this part. I'm gonna like put on some audio of the actual like documentary that we're talking about. If I can get to the. I think this guy has an MD after his name. A lot of data for the questions that the panel members were asking. What would happen if you touched the left hand to the coils? And how much you frank get you be compromised? The panel was not supplied with the summary about credibility testing. What about the tubal perforation? I don't know what happens to people with metal sensitivity when you implant metals in them. They still approved it, even with these open-ended questions. The uh, device clearly met the criteria of safety and effectiveness uh, required for approval. At the end of the meeting, one of the panel members asked, what are we going to do if we're seeing problems in 10 years? Private investigators would find each of us, bring us back here, and ask us why we approved this. Okay, so that's the part we're talking about. I'm going to, like, shut it off okay, so that so the I, Netflix doesn't sue us. I found the information. Okay. So advisory committee members include scientific experts, including physician researchers, statisticians, engineers, medical faculty, chemists, biologists, and other science-oriented professionals, consumer representative, an industry representative, and an FDA patient representative. So they do not have to be an MD to be on. Yes. advisory committee. But I they also have, have, but it seems like they have to have like actual anywhere in the medical field background. Yeah, yeah, which like makes some sense, but then there's also part of me that's like, but if they have that medical expertise and they're asking all the like very reasonable logical questions that like people with medical expertise should ask, they're getting shit answers and somehow the approval still happens. Like <laughs> How does one, like, like, uh, yeah, like, there, there's a part that's just like, well, what's the point of even having any rules at all if, like, an application this bad can still get approved? Um, but yeah. Like, that was also something we were all wondering when we were watching The Inventor, like, why were, like, no actual medical involved people funding this thing because it was all like well that I have the theory that it's specifically because she wanted because specifically because she had so many political people on the board like Jesus Christ Kissinger being on her board so like (laughs) unfucking believable um anyway um I she I think really think she wanted military contracts because I mean, you get a military contract, you're basically set. Yeah. Like, like, 
Well, and I also think what was interesting about the inventor, mm-hmm. they talked about how she really didn't want good communication within her organization. So, for example, she wouldn't want, like, her biomedical people working in the labs talking to, like, the engineers that were designing this device because she was worried about, like, them swapping trade secrets and, like... You know, even they were reading, like, all their staff's emails. They were doing all this, like, and I think maybe that's in part because she didn't want her own staff figuring out just how fraudulent the whole operation was. But, like, I think that that kind of is part of it, too. She just, she knew, I think, on some level that, like, the real medical people would see this for the bullshit it is. Or, you know, she would spin that as, like, oh, they're part of the system, and that's why they're going to tell us it's impossible because, you know, blah, 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 blah. They just don't have the Silicon Valley mindset that's, you know. And she, some of the stories that her employees told basically sounded almost like gaslighting to me of, like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Of basically, if you tried to be... um, the person who said, no, this isn't possible, or, like, you need to let this device be bigger, you need to maybe not have it do 200 blood tests or whatever. Like, if you were approaching this project with any, you know, basis in reality, yeah, it became, you know, oh, well, you just, like, that's your fault for not being as visionary as we are, um, as opposed to you just being, like, a person trying to do the job at hand. And actually get something done that's concrete. And um, I think we also, Jessica and I, on the last thing, did the the fire Festival. And that was a really common thing within the Billy McFarland empire. Was if you tried to say, no, we can't do this. It was never, you know, their fault for incompetence. It was, like, your fault for just not being visionary It's truly stunning, like, I guess for me to watch something like this. And, um, because I just think of, like, the guilt that I carry around with me every day for, like, the, like, both for, like, shit where, like, yeah, like, I've grown as a person, I've done better things, but also just, like, I, like, don't hold, like, a door open for someone, and I think about that for, like, 12 (laughs) hours straight, and, like, they can just do, like, fucking anything, like, she can, like, pal around with, like, Kissinger and, like, lie to people, and like raise 400 million dollars for literally just nonsense mm-hmm. and, and like he stroke her employees computers with no qualms about it yeah. yeah no like that's i i just think about almost how freeing it would be to live life without a conscience or just any sort of soul yeah. you know well and one of the things that i thought was really really interesting was that towards the end of the inventor, a lot of people talked about how, like, they still didn't really believe that Elizabeth saw herself as this sort of, like, devious, manipulative, you know, insert profanity here. I actually here. kind of think... I almost think that part's, like, bullshit. Not that they... That, they, her, that them believing that is bullshit. But I guess, just for me... I, like, I don't know. I feel like maybe because I didn't interact with her personally. Um, to me, what she was doing was so clear-cut, just, like, a way to gain power and access to power and access to wealth. I honestly... There's not... 
there's not a belief in me that she was doing this for like some greater good or on yeah. the basis of idealism or benevolence. I don't. I based on her behavior, I don't believe that that was her main motivation. Yeah, and I think that that's part of what makes it such a fascinating documentary and makes yeah. her such a fascinating person is that it's like so many people would look at her and be like, this is so obviously wrong. How could you possibly commit to being this wrong for this amount of time? And yet the people who interacted her with her, with her personally were basically kind of saying, oh, we don't actually really think she saw this the way it was. We thought, you know. Um, she had this one part where she she cited Martin Luther King and she basically was like oh well you don't need to see the whole staircase you just need to take that first step and have faith that the rest of the staircase is there so that's basically like an eloquent way of saying I'm bullshitting this as I go right like and maybe in some respects that that's a fine strategy that you do just have to like take a step and then wait for the rest of the pathway to be illuminated but like when the stakes are as high as they were when you're raising hundreds of millions of dollars especially when they got to the point that they were taking like real blood samples from real patients who were like making real medical decisions based on this data like I don't see how you could still be operating in that world of like well you know it'll all come together eventually (laughs) Also, like, I always go back to that part in the documentary where they ask her, she's being asked in an interview one point, it's like, are you a laboratory scientist? Are you an engineer? Are you an entrepreneur? And she specifically describes herself as an entrepreneur. Now, for me, someone who genuinely wants to celebrate innovation and science would choose one of the other two options. Entrepreneur, to me, has much longer, like, financial connotations than... Uh, there were the other two. Yeah. And one of the things I had in my notes was how she compares herself to Steve Jobs kind of a lot. And it's kind of common knowledge at this point that Steve Jobs was really not the technological genius behind oh, I Apple. I thought you were going to be like, he was a dick. And I was he like, was yeah, true. I mean, I, I don't dispute that. But, like, and maybe that's part of the problem is that Elizabeth Holmes was, like, looking up to him and thinking, oh, like, that's who I want to be when I grow up. And, you know, he was a dick. But... Steve Wozniak is really the sort of technological genius who actually, like, made the first Apple computer. Um, And really, Steve Jobs' genius lies more in the marketing side of things and the business side of things. So I kind of felt like, if you're following that example, I can see how you would think, oh, I don't have to actually worry about, like, the laws of physics or science. I can just, like, bully the science people into giving me what I want. And if I'm just as, you know, if I'm just the unrelentless dick that Steve Jobs was, things will come together. Um, And I can't help but think that there must be a lot of people who think that they're the next Steve Jobs and then they fail and we just don't really hear about them. Like, there's, for for every Steve Jobs, there has to be, you know, hundreds if not thousands of aspiring Steve Jobses that just start a business and it blows up in their face because they don't know what they're doing. Um, and so, do you think there's maybe danger in putting figures like him up on the pedestal where they are and making other people think, oh, I can totally be the next Steve Jobs. I just have to, like, 
refused to take no for an answer. I mean, to me, I guess, there's much greater than, like, even, like, individual, the idolization of individuals. I think the idolization of wealth is really the problem. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, basically, people just tend to lionize the wealthy individual because it's an easier narrative to follow. Yeah. And more directly... And then Steve Jobs is especially, um, I think Steve Jobs especially hits a tone because, like, he was wealthy and he died. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a thing where it's like, you know, the wealthy, I think, almost seem untouchable in some way. So I think the fact that, like, he wasn't able to beat cancer mm-hmm. also makes him kind of a mythic figure in that way. Also, Apple is so, like, ubiquitous as part of daily life. Um, yeah, I think, you know, that's what made, has, is what has made him such, like, a, an idol in that yeah. sense. Well, and I would also say that the fact that he died also is part of why people then feel like they can't be as critical as they might be if he was still alive, because there's this sort of, like, mm-hmm. Are you going to criticize role? a person You're, with cancer? Exactly, yeah. exactly. There's that sense of, and I, you know, we're literally recording this on an Apple iPhone right now, so, like, mm-hmm. the the sort of way that Steve Jobs changed the world, I think, is kind of, like, undeniable, whether that's, like, a good change or a bad change is a whole other debate, but, like, the legacy is there, but then when you take a second to be like, well, wait a second, should we really be putting him on this pedestal when Apple was, like, a whole company, and a lot of people, you know, busted their butts to make, you know, iPhones, and then you have, like, all the people that are literally assembling iPhones, like, over in China now, and, you know... But, like, I'm not sure it's healthy for, like, an entire company to be portrayed as though it is one person. Mm-hmm. You know? What are your thoughts on that? Ditto on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um, so, let's see. One of the other things that I think we, we talked about... Yeah. Um, is what if we had like specific things that we could change that would like prevent both people getting their insides royally fucked up by improper medical devices and or the fraud on the scale of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos what do you think like needs to be done Medicare for all, Medicare bitch. for all. First of all, like, yeah, Medicare for all, but, like, mm-hmm. probably the biggest thing immediately it can be done is just eliminate the 510K elimin- uh, That's true. Exception that's, a, that's an immediate... And force everyone um, to do the testing. Yeah. Um, I, I, would, I would require ethics agreements um, for also all FDA um, officers and advisory members. I would... So... I don't know. I I don't know that I'm quite that extreme. I would want, if we are going to keep the 510K, it would have to be directly to another thing that has been through the approval process. Not like five generations ago, this one thing went through the approval process. Although in some cases it's not even that because the approval process wasn't even instigated till 1976. So basically anything that was pre-market 
1976 was grandfathered in. So you can possibly use the 510K loophole for a product that was never approved. So I would say maybe keep it because I do get the, the logic of like, okay, we only made like this one relatively minor change. So people need it now and we don't necessarily want to like go through the layers and layers of bureaucracy of getting it reapproved but it would have to be like directly to something that's been through the approval process and not something that like was FDA cleared that was FDA cleared that was FDA cleared that was FDA cleared based on something that went through the approval process because the approval process if it was what I wanted it to be would probably be longer and stricter than it is now and I do think there's some legitimacy in the idea of like hey people need whatever now you know, especially in cases of, like, terminal illnesses or, like, cases where, like, this person's going to die within, you know, a year if they don't get something, you know, but the FDA approval process takes three years. Um, and I would make the process so that you don't have companies paying for their own tests. Um, like, you would have, like, either the government or some, like, third-party lab, you know, doing those tests instead of just like, hey, we did our own. And I think there should be like a minimum like sample size, like have a, like, have a quantity of like, you can't, you, not, you don't just need to have human trials, but you need like human trials with like X sample size. Mm-hmm. How do we handle like anything based on a product that was like the ancestral product was recalled and so like the yeah fifth generation product like how we know if that fatal flaw that killed the other thing is not here yeah definitely that like and i think that would also like possibly even discourage people from using it for something that i think would be relatively simple that you could get like passed relatively quickly if you just had a rule saying like hey if your product is cleared based on product x and product x is recalled you are required to recall your product i could see that possibly like changing the incentives a little bit where people would maybe not want to abuse it because they're like well we don't want to have this stipulation that like our product recall is entirely dependent on this other person's product um, would you like also want to do almost like allow the 510k loophole but also do like almost like you can only use the 510k loophole as a probationary thing like mm-hmm. so like submit it and accept under the 510k loophole but it can only do that while you undergo like I don't know like two to five years of clinical trials I could see that and then yeah. I, I think there's another thing in like when they talk about this more in like some of the libertarian circles where I used to run, they talked about how the FDA requires safety and efficacy mm-hmm. and how that's kind of like the where things can get get iffy where even if you have a product that at least is safe at least isn't gonna like royally screw up someone's life but it might take you like another five years to prove that it like does the thing that you want it to do that like if you can at least prove safety maybe you can take it and like disclose to whoever you're using who's ever using it like this is still like an experimental thing that we're not sure about like you know um but at the very least, like, prove safety. <laughs> like, um, and then maybe, like, 
for the efficacy, that would be like, okay, you can take it to market, disclose to anyone who's using it that it's still like mm-hmm. an in trial thing, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, neither one of the documentaries, like, talked about that, but, like, that's just a thing I've heard in, like, other circles. Um, let's see. Do people have other things to say? Oh, wait, yes. If you are going to watch The Bleeding Edge, you have to know going in that there's going to be graphic medical imagery. This is true. Oh, yeah, true. Uh, Um, the phrase liquefied hip is in there? And the liquefied hip is I, I was gonna say, yeah, there is an image that goes with it. Uh, vaginal mesh part was another part that was like, well, that's oh, yeah. just like you, like just like chunks of like. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Like the diagram mm. can also get kind of. Oh, actually. Oh, yeah. that's maybe another like regulation that I would maybe like to possibly reevaluate is like if it's a surgical implant, you need to prove that you can like safely remove it from people if something goes wrong yeah mm-hmm. um, yeah. or like that there's some kind of like plan b in place not like the literal drug plan b but like the more general um like, i also thought it was interesting that a lot of um what they focused on in the bleeding edge um in regards was a lot of it um had to do with like gynecological issues yes. in women um which i mean is just a huge discussion in the medical field now because so little is known about things, you know, like PCOS or endometriosis mm-hmm. or, you know, a host of other issues. Um, so I think the fact that, you know, so many of the women were discussing how, you know, like, you know, after their Esher implantations, they would be experiencing like heavy bleeding or, you know, like intense pain and they'd just be like, oh, well, those are just, you know, kind of like normal like period issues that you would be facing like some of them knew that like no this isn't normal and we're not listened to the worst example of this was there was a latina woman who was literally told like oh this is like a normal thing and latinas just bleed more which is so weird because she's just kind of like well i've always been latina and i've never had this much bleeding before until after i got this device um well and i think that that's yeah i don't know like yeah, I think the concerns of, you know, any anyone who has, like, a uterus and a vagina, I think, a lot of their concerns in regards to, like, their reproductive systems are automatically, if not disregarded, then at least downplayed, because so little is understood about it. Because, let's say you even discover a problem, like, the treatments for it, like, I mean, even, essentially, endometriosis the only cure they can offer you is a radical hysterectomy. So, I mean, if you don't want to do that, essentially pain management or laparoscopic surgery to remove lesions are, like, your two options. We didn't even talk about the robot hysterectomies. Oh, my God. No, like... (laughs) Was it just robot hysterectomy or was it, like, robot surgery, period? It was... Specifically, they focused on hysterectomies, which I was having, like, involuntary kegels when they were talking about, like, when... Like, Some of the things I, that can happen. I, th- I think it's called like de I don't. I forget the exact term, but essentially, it's when they take everything out, they do a thing called like a vaginal cuff, which is where they basically. Oh no! It over. Oh my god! 
Oh. They so they like flap it over. So it's essentially like your vagina just ends now in like a little pocket. I just remember. And what so that's exactly what that. so in robotic surgery you have a higher chance of that cuff opening and just like just everything just falling it's out of your vagina. Like trap door and the gist hinges the wrong way. Which is like, like, like just very casually mentions McCullough fell out. <laughs> and then Oh, God. Yeah, no, there's some really <laughs> weird things. Like, uh, there, yeah. So, I've hysterectomy, just... which is a semi-common-ish procedure and has yeah. been for a while. People are like, oh, but what if you did it using this robot? And really, surgeons that are using the robot should go through a fair amount of training. I believe they said the company actually recommended, like, nine weeks of, like, intensive training before yeah, using Yeah, so the that's robot. training on, like, grapes or, you know... And then, like, what they actually got and... was, like, a You have to do ten surgeries. They, yeah. you, and, and then they, they had to pass, like, a out. quiz or something. Yeah, they had yeah. ten-question like, quiz. Ugh. Like, one surgeon explicitly was, like, I did not feel comfortable using this until after two or three hundred tries. <laughs> yeah. So I think that that's like, like, but yet there were people that were like, oh, use the ro like, and the robot, because it's like new and fancy, so it must be better. And if there's one thing to take away from like this whole podcast, new and fancy doesn't necessarily mean it's better. <laughs> yeah. Um, and. Yeah, sorry. We were talking about something before we went on the robot hysterectomy tangent. Oh, you yeah. had a point. Uh, oh, I was just talking about how it was interesting to me how so many of um, the medical devices in regards to were in regards to like women's gynecological yeah. health. And I think that's also an issue where you don't have pe- you don't have enough people with vaginas in the like approval process. Like, if all the people that are like looking at these devices and trying to say, oh, it's safe, oh, it's not safe, if, like, all those people are, you know, cisgender men, mm-hmm. that might be part of your issue, too. Um, I don't think that they really address that head-on, but it's definitely an interesting question to ask. Um, and also just, are women's pain downplayed in a way that, like, you know men's pain is not mm-hmm. I don't know what also just reminds me of how like so many of like what the baseline of what they give medical professions to look for are based on men like I have friends who are like nurses and they were talking about how like for years not so much now now like they know a bit more but for decades they were just based on like heart attack symptoms on what men typically experience and women actually differ slightly mm-hmm. in their presentations of heart attacks I think ADHD is another one of these ADHD where, like, is another one. a really good example of this I believe where... autism is as well yeah, yeah. Um, we're just like the symptoms that women would exhibit are different mm-hmm. um And the other thing, I just want to say that they talked about how, like, when women were having all these gynecological issues, there were a couple cases where they talked, like, they kind of casually mentioned, like, oh, yeah, and, like, women's partners have, like, left them over this. And just, like, can I just extend a big fuck you to all those men right now? Like, obviously, there's larger systemic issues in Mm -hmm. play, and I don't blame the documentarians for focusing on that, but, like, this... The way that, like, no, they sort of casually mentioned how, like, you know, if, if you can't have sex for ten years, your husband's probably going to leave you. 
And like Yeah, like one of the women that they followed, like they showed her like her husband divorced her and then like she lost her apartment and now she has to yeah. live in like hotels with her four children. Actually, Actually her children ended up going yeah. into a, a foster care. Yeah. yeah. And that was, like, I mean, there were other issues besides, like, the, the piece of trash ex-husband. But also, like, the woman had to go to doctors so often that she really couldn't hold, like, a steady job. Yeah, and then eventually she was um, put out on disability. But then when you're put out on disability, those checks don't come automatically. Like, paperwork has to be processed and everything. And also, nowhere near probably the amount that she was making mm-hmm. when she was actually working her full-time job. Mm-hmm. So that and she there were four sit- kids, you know? <laughs> And, like, the kids weren't old enough to get jobs either, so, yeah. No, and I think they, a lot of times, the consequences of these mistakes are just, they're more than medical. Um, And I do think the Bleeding Edge did a really, really good job of exploring some of that, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, it was also um, interesting to see um, the women's activism in regards to everything although like I said um, like I was saying last night after we finished watching it was almost upsetting to me when they were in the meeting with the congresswoman and then she was saying like you know like yeah like this is you know she was saying like how first she said you know how she enjoyed hearing from their stories Uh, but just the part where she was like yeah like you can't get tired like you just have to keep going and I was like god I was like I understand what she's saying and that, like, they do, you know, they can't give up in regards to, you know, their fight to ensure that, like, women don't suffer, other women don't suffer the way that they have. But, my God, to tell someone who now will face, like, lifelong chronic health issues as a result of this, that they yeah. can never get tired or give up or... It's just, oh, it was so, yeah. it was so heartbreaking and to it, me. To it, see. like, improperly places a burden on, like, the victims, where it's, yeah. like, it's not our fault we fucked up and, like, didn't prevent this totally preventable thing. It's, like, well, you know, if you just keep fighting the good fight, you know, eventually this product that was approved in 2002 can finally come off the market in 2018. Um... And, I mean, and I think, like, the, one of the women that was featured, she had a Facebook group, and I think they said, that, how many people were in that Facebook group? 30,000? 35,000, like, I believe. Yeah, 30, I somewhere in the 30,000. I think the point where Isher was actually taken off the market, it was over 50. Yeah. And, and I think they, they said there were, like, over 9,000, like, Isher-related surgeries across this group. Um, so, currently, there are 42,000 members in the group. So, I might have been wrong when I said 50. Or it could have gone down, we don't really know. But, like, that's a lot of people either way. Um, and, it just... It just is a little disheartening that you, you want to believe that anything that, like, is FDA approved or FDA cleared or anything that, like, a doctor would literally, like, surgically implant in your body um, is either, you know, already approved or at the very least they're, like, disclosing to you that it's an experimental treatment and they're not sure yet. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Um, and the fact that, like, so much of the burden falls on, like, consumers to sort of do that research themselves. Mm-hmm. And if they do get fucked over, they might be looking at, you know, a decade-long legal battle just to get it off the market. Yeah. And how many tens of thousands of people might be adversely affected before, you know, the government kind of is like, well, wait a second, maybe maybe we should do something about this. Mm-hmm. Like... It's it's discouraging. <laughs> I wanted to end on a more optimistic note than wait, that, but I really one, I really wait. can't. Oh, wait, what is? I have one thing. more thing, like one okay. more thing, like if you are a person who either lost a child or an, a wanted pregnancy, there is a section that talks about like when Isher failed and people got pregnant and lost pregnancy. So like that's yes, another yes. thing. There, that is another factor. Going into. Um, so, that is yeah. Another, no, um, the bleeding edge, devastating part. Of wonderful it. documentary, but definitely some imagery that is not for the faint of heart. Yes. Um. Would you say I? The inventor does the inventor need a trigger warning for anything? I would say for probably the blood sticking scenes. There, oh, like, yeah, there's, there's some, some there's graphics. some extreme close-ups of blood draws <sighs> that really didn't need to be there. Um, in the inventor, but overall the inventor I don't think got quite as graphic as yeah. the bleeding edge. Yeah, I would say yeah, just There's don't... also very in- wait, no, you talk about the very intense close-ups of like blood being drawn. Yeah. Yes. Needles so... going into people's skin. Yes. And the sound That's a that's what has always bothered me about blood draws is the sound. I can actually deal with the needles. I uh... so I will just admit that I like I'm not as bad about blood draws as I know some people are. Uh-huh. But, like, I also just, from an artistic merit standpoint, why were those shots there? Like, that's, like, the part that gets me, is I'm just, like, why are you, like, because if you are the, if you're among the people that, like, gets kind of easily squeamish around blood, Uh you could have had just, like, a relatively normal shot of a blood stick, and those people would have still been, like, ooh, icky. Whereas, like... For me, I wasn't even necessarily grossed out by those shots. I was just like, the fuck, why is it here? Maybe like, it was just supposed to... be to... like five inches away from your face. Yeah, it didn't need to be... I, I don't know. I'm guessing the emphasis was supposed to be... Because I believe the first time they showed... Oh, the stick is when she's describing how to her a blood draws like a torture experiment. But they did it several times, too. They did. Like, they kept coming back to yeah, it. Yeah, no, I understand why they did it the first time. I think to do it... That's why probably what I said, like, stylistically, um, it felt a little bit off to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but other than that, if you, like, just be warned that, yeah, there's some, there's some shots in both of these movies. There's some graphic. There's graphic. some Also, imagery. if you are, like, not okay with discussion of people being gaslit, yes. that's another thing. Yeah. Yeah, in the inventor, and I guess yeah, in both of them, really. I was like, yeah, it was like essentially in both. Um. Yeah. Um, so, so we would love for you to watch these. Like again, so the Bleeding Edge is on Netflix. The Inventor is on HBO. Um, if you have you seen one of them, have you seen both of them? Hit us up and uh, share with us your thoughts on America's current healthcare yeah. system. And what you would do to, like, fix some of these problems. If if you had a magic wand that could fix the things. 